Listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussion of suicide. Please keep this in mind when deciding if, how, and when you'll listen. For resources on these topics, visit spotify.com resources. We're going to start today's episode with a pretty basic question. What makes a cult a cult? The answer might seem obvious. We've been discussing it on this show for years. A cult needs a leader, followers, and a system of beliefs that sets them apart from everyone else. That system creates an in-group dynamic, and eventually the leader is able to control their followers' thoughts, feelings, and actions. That's really the crucial ingredient when identifying a cult, control. And it's what makes Heaven's Gate and their mass suicide such a complicated case. The leaders of Heaven's Gate were accused of brainwashing and mind control. But the group was founded on principles of free will and self-determination. It had an open-door policy. Members could leave any time. They could also rejoin if they wanted. No one was blacklisted. Before their deaths in March of 1997, most of the group sat down for videotaped interviews. They stressed over and over that what they were about to do was their choice. They were happy about it, even if it didn't make sense to most people. One member said plainly, When we leave, I know the media will treat this as some sort of weird, bizarre cult, a suicide cult, whatever you might want to call it. But look deeper than those words. Look for what we've taught people, and the message we've left behind, because we know that it is difficult to understand. So what was really going on inside Heaven's Gate? Were they actually a cult bound to the choices of their leader? And if they weren't, then what's the alternative? How do we understand what happened to them? What they did to themselves? Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is a special anniversary series on Heaven's Gate, presented by Cults. We're taking a deep dive into the so-called UFO cult to try to understand who they were, what they believed, and what caused their tragic end 25 years ago. We'll start by looking at the group's founders, Bonnie Lou Nettles and Marshall Applewhite. We'll explore their backgrounds, their beliefs, and how they recruited their first followers. In the rest of the series, we'll see the rise of Heaven's Gate and what life was like inside the group. We'll understand how their beliefs changed over two decades until their final exit in March of 1997. We have all that coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. 
I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. What most people remember about Heaven's Gate is how it ended, which makes sense. Their mass ritualized suicide was absolutely shocking. Footage of their matching black Nike sneakers and bodies covered by purple shrouds dominated the news cycle. Immediately, everyone was asking the same thing. Why? We got the answer pretty quickly. The group took their lives so that a spaceship following the Hale-Bopp comet would carry them all to heaven. But that explanation sounded, well, crazy. So that's how they were remembered, a bunch of lunatics who died in search of the mothership. Instead of mourning them, the UFO cult became a punchline. Media magnate Ted Turner called their deaths a way to get rid of a few nuts. Except they weren't actually trying to meet aliens. They were trying to get to heaven. The suicides were the finale in a 20-year quest for salvation. It's an important distinction, and it's why scholar Benjamin Zeller argued that Heaven's Gate wasn't a cult at all, it was a religion. We should probably look at it as more of an extreme offshoot of Christianity, and their suicides were the ultimate testament of their faith. Of course, not everyone agrees with that, so we'll take a look at some of their arguments later on. But we have to at least acknowledge that the group had strong roots in Christianity, One of the co-founders, Marshall Applewhite, was a devout Christian, and that definitely influenced Heaven's Gate's beliefs. Long before he founded the group, Applewhite was born and raised in small-town Texas. His father was a Presbyterian preacher, and for a while, it seemed like Applewhite would follow in his footsteps. In 1952, he enrolled in seminary school, but he left the program after two years. We don't know exactly why this happened, He was still a strong Christian and stayed connected to the church, but Applewhite was a closeted bisexual, raised by a staunchly conservative father. It's been suggested that he wasn't able to reconcile those feelings with his future as a preacher, so he walked away. But we don't know if that's actually the case. Maybe he just wanted a bigger stage than the pulpit. After he left the seminary, Applewhite pursued his other great love, music. He was a talented singer and had the natural charisma of a strong performer. He earned a master's degree in music and voice from the University of Colorado, playing the lead role in university productions of South Pacific and Oklahoma. By now, Applewhite was in his late 20s, married with two children. The future looked promising. The whole family moved to New York City in search of his big break, but it never came. And a few years later, the dream dried up. They headed back south to Tuscaloosa, so Applewhite could teach music at the University of Alabama. For a while, it was a welcome change. He enjoyed teaching, and he was popular with his students. Maybe a little too popular. Rumors swirled that he was having an affair with a male graduate student. Applewhite's wife left him, taking the kids with her, and they eventually divorced. In 1966, Applewhite moved to Houston and started teaching at the University of St. Thomas. Initially, he thrived. 
his music career picked back up. He worked as a choral director for a few local churches and started singing for the Houston Grand Opera. He seemed to come to terms with his sexuality, openly dating both men and women. But for one reason or another, the wheels fell off. He was either asked to leave the university or resign for personal reasons. And he stopped singing with the opera. According to one story, on the night he was supposed to perform his biggest role yet, he had a psychotic episode during rehearsal. It was so extreme, he allegedly had to be hospitalized. What happened to Applewhite next is a bit murky. He bounced around for a few months directionless, in debt. Then his father died. Applewhite was depressed and in crisis. And in the middle of all that turmoil, Bonnie Lou Nettles walked into his life. They met in a hospital in 1972, where Nettles worked as a nurse. What 40-year-old Applewhite was doing there, whether he was a patient or not, is up for debate. Some people think he was still struggling with his mental health and receiving treatment for depression and hearing voices. His sister claimed that he was there after almost dying from a serious heart blockage. Applewhite said that he was there to check in on a sick friend when he happened to bump into Nettles. And in that first conversation, they recognized something in each other a kinship. Applewhite later said, I felt I had known her forever. The more they talked, the more the pieces fell into place. Applewhite was curious about astrology, and he really wanted someone to do his birth chart. As it turned out, Nettles was an experienced astrologer. She'd happily do his chart for him. But she needed his birth certificate. Applewhite happened to have it with him that day out in his car. He ran to the parking lot grabbed the document and handed it over. He couldn't believe the way it had all come together. It felt like fate. And once Nettles read his chart, she realized that their souls were linked. They'd known each other in a past life. That's why there had been this feeling of recognition when they first met. And now, she realized, they'd been brought back together in this life for something important. They had a spiritual mission to complete. Sociologist Yanya Lalich argued that even though they were co-founders, this was actually the moment that Nettles recruited Applewhite to follow her. Yes, they developed their beliefs together, but their grand project was her idea. One former follower said, this was her cult, there was no doubt about it. Bonnie was definitely the founder, and she convinced Applewhite that he had a mission. Their power dynamic makes sense given their backgrounds. Applewhite didn't have as much experience with the New Age ideas emerging in the 1970s, ideas that would later shape Heaven's Gate. But Nettles had been exploring things like astrology and mysticism for years. Nettles also grew up in Texas, in Houston. She was raised Baptist, but never felt that connected to her faith. Going to church was more about seeing her friends than talking to God. It was just what you did in the South. As an adult, Nettles got married, had kids, and became a nurse. But it doesn't seem like she was completely satisfied with her conventional picket-fence life. It's not clear what exactly she felt was missing, but she started searching for meaning in new places, like astrology, mediumship, and UFOs. According to the documentary Heaven's Gate, The Cult of Cults, Nettles shared these alternative interests with her daughter, Terry. Some nights, they'd look at the stars together, wondering what was out there. Terry remembered, We used to dream about a UFO picking us up and taking us away from this world. We didn't feel like we belonged here. Nettles also dabbled in theosophy. 
an alternative religion that blends a wide range of beliefs, from spiritualism, Eastern mysticism, and the occult. Nettles learned to channel spirits and held seances in her living room. She said she had a connection with the spirit of a Franciscan monk named Brother Francis, who gave her advice about the future. Another spirit allegedly predicted that she would meet Applewhite. And when they did meet, Applewhite was in crisis, full of questions that his own faith had failed to answer. But Nettles had the tools. His destiny, their destiny, was written in the stars. There was nothing to question anymore. He simply had to accept his calling. Except they still weren't sure what this great mission was. All they knew was that they had to complete it together. So they spent practically every waking minute with each other trying to figure it out, completely isolating themselves from almost anyone else. Applewhite explained, There was never a coming together in that we were bed partners or involved in a physical relationship. But there was something that compelled us to spend time together and listen to each other and search together. But eventually they realized that there was a limit to what they could learn from each other. To truly understand their mission, they needed to embrace their role as seekers, strike out and search for the truth. So, in January of 1973, they packed their bags and hit the road, on the hunt for destiny. Coming up, the vision of Heaven's Gate appears. I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. In 2020, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and finding that the truth may be even harder to locate than the person. Who forced a famed explorer to lose his way? What did a missing Hollywood starlet leave behind? And how could the heiress to a Chicago candy fortune just vanish? Every Thursday on Disappearances, join me for a deeper look into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Tracking timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the actual truth. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. The 1970s was a turning point in American history. There was a wave of social and political change coloring the landscape. Things like the Black Power Movement and the continued fight for civil rights, Roe versus Wade and the feminist movement, anti-war activists protesting the prolonged Vietnam War. The doomsday clock ticked closer to midnight. The youth of America was angry, disillusioned with the government and traditional institutions. They were desperate for something else to hold on to and give them meaning. In response to all this stress, there was an explosion of alternative religions, an entire generation of seekers. 
We don't have time to unpack the full scale of the New Age movement here, but we're going to highlight a few key pieces, because this is the America that Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Lou Nettles were exploring in 1973. The New Age was the culmination of several ideas, including ufology from the 1950s and the hippie counterculture of the 1960s. It introduced new ideas about health, spiritualism, and the potential of the human mind and body. Religious historian Sarah M. Pike concluded, New Agers are committed to the transformation of both self and society through a host of practices that include channeling, visualization, astrology, meditation, and alternative healing methods. Yoga became more popular, a physical practice to better connect with your body and open your mind. Vegetarianism and teetotaling became more mainstream as a way to achieve optimum health. Psychology also played a role in the New Age, heavily influenced by the work of psychologist Abraham Maslow. He identified the hierarchy of needs, basically what we need to be happy, healthy, functioning people. Some of those needs are pretty simple. Food, water, shelter, things like that. Once those are satisfied, we need security, love, friendship, and self-respect. Maslow argued that if you achieve just those basic needs, you would be generally happy. But the more developed you became, the more often you had, quote, peak experiences, profound moments of love, happiness, and fulfillment. Maslow compared them to the moments of epiphany in religion. With enough work, you could find peace, enlightenment. Maslow called this self-actualization. Maslow died before the New Age really hit its stride. But several movements co-opted his ideas, like the Human Potential Movement, which argued that if enough people were functioning at their highest level, their collective transcendence would have the power to change the world, bring peace to everyone, which, considering all the war and social unrest, seemed like exactly what people needed at the time. And in the middle of all of this New Age thinking were 42-year-old Marshall Applewhite and 46-year-old Bonnie Lou Nettles. Throughout 1973, they road-tripped around the country, working odd jobs to pay for gas and food. They were spiritual nomads, trying to understand their destiny. Applewhite and Nettles visited New Age groups, alternative health centers, and popular gurus. But they also stayed connected with Christianity, sometimes staying in churches. They read books from all kinds of religions. Applewhite said, We studied everything we could get our hands on that had to do with any sort of awareness, spiritual awareness, scientific awareness, religious awareness. Our thirst was absolutely unquenchable. Religion scholar Benjamin Zeller suspects they might have read Chariots of the Gods by Eric von Deniken, which was a bestseller at the time. It lays out a version of the ancient astronaut theory. In general, it argues that early humans were visited by aliens who gave them tools and knowledge. This could explain things like Egyptian pyramids, Stonehenge, or the statues on Easter Island, which, according to theorists like von Deniken, otherwise seem impossible given the technology that was available at the time. But von Deniken's book took the ancient aliens theory one step further. Not only did aliens come to Earth, but their visits were actually the basis for most of the world's religions. He argued that ancient Hebrews wrote the Old Testament as a way to explain their contact with extraterrestrials. The book was kind of the perfect bridge between Applewhite's and Nettles' backgrounds. For it to resonate, you had to believe in both Christianity and UFOs. 
and Zeller argues that these ideas had a distinct impact on their eventual epiphany in July of 1973. While they were camping in Gold Beach, Oregon, near the Rogue River, for months, apple-wetted nettles had been soaking up as much spiritual information as they could, from as many sources they could find. And while they were at Gold Beach, they realized that they finally found their answer. Applewhite later said that it was as if we had been given smelling salts and told, okay, you guys, you've had 40 years and now it's time for you to realize who you are, what you have to do, and get on with the show. First, they expanded on the ancient astronaut theory. Not only do aliens exist, but they've come to Earth in the past, and everything written in the Bible is based on those encounters. Thousands of years ago, people didn't have the same modern words. So when the Bible described angels coming down from heaven on chariots, it was actually aliens landing in spaceships. They claimed the sick were healed by miracles, but only because they didn't understand advanced alien medicine. This meant that God was an alien, Jesus too, and heaven must be in outer space. With the right telescope, we'd be able to see God in the cosmos. With this framework in place, they reconsidered some of the prophecies of the New Testament. The book of Revelation mentions two witnesses sent by God to testify before the end times. But it says that the world will reject their message and the witnesses will be killed. For three and a half days, their bodies will lay in the streets while the public celebrates their death. Then they'll be resurrected and the world will watch as they ascend to heaven in a cloud. Applewhite and Nettles realized that they were these two witnesses. They'd been called to spread God's true message. Eventually, they would be martyred, brought back to life, transformed, and called home to heaven. They called this the demonstration and believed it would jumpstart the apocalypse. But there was still hope for salvation. Because they knew that the cloud they would ascend on was actually a spaceship and Applewhite and Nettles promised that anyone who accepted their message would be allowed to board it alongside them. It was the rapture via UFO. But only perfected beings would be allowed to fly to heaven, which they called the next level. It required a total transformation. They could no longer be human. They had to become more than that. It was a physical change, preparing you to board a physical craft for a journey to a physical utopia. Therefore, becoming a member of the next level wasn't really about faith, it was a biological, scientific process. Applewhite explained, when a human has overcome all of his human-level activities, he goes through a metamorphosis, just exactly as a caterpillar does when he quits being a caterpillar, and he goes off into a chrysalis and becomes a butterfly. It was basically the ultimate version of the human potential movement, but the reward was everlasting life in utopia. And Jesus had already given them the blueprint to follow with his own death and resurrection. Applewhite and Nettles wrote in their first official statement, he did not leave his body in the grave. He converted it into his body of that next kingdom. This is the only way the next kingdom is entered permanently. Each human has that full potential. But just like Jesus, the transformation required sacrifice. You had to be 100% focused on the change. Friends, family, jobs, possessions, they were distractions. To truly overcome your human level, you had to leave everything from your old life behind. 
It was a huge ask, and they had a hard time convincing anyone it was worth it. By May of 1974, they'd made their way back to Houston, and that was where they finally recruited their first follower, named Sharon. She'd run in some of the same New Age circles as Nettles. When they approached Sharon, she was at a crossroads, in a bad marriage and spiritually lost. After several conversations, she chose to abandon her family and join Applewhite and Nettles on the road. She took up the role of evangelist. Whenever the trio reached a new place, Sharon would go into town first, talking to the locals about their message, trying to drum up a receptive audience. But they weren't able to recruit anyone else. And after four months, Sharon's family caught up with them. They begged her to return home. She had a two-year-old daughter who needed a mother. Sharon had already been struggling with her guilt over leaving, and once her family confronted her, she agreed to come back. She still believed in the message and worried that she had disappointed God, but it was time to go home. After losing their first and only follower, the story of Heaven's Gate could have ended there, but once again, fate intervened. In late 1974, Marshall Applewhite was arrested for stealing a rental car. He spent six months in jail, waiting for the trial. Ultimately, he was sentenced to time served and released. When he met up with Nettles again in March of 1975, he told her that his time in isolation had been incredibly fruitful. It had given him a chance to really think about everything, their mission, their message, their purpose, and he'd had another revelation. If they were God's witnesses, then they couldn't be human. They were already members of the next level, aliens in human clothes. And because they'd already transformed, they had to do more than just spread the message. They had to be teachers, leaders by example. Six months in jail also gave Applewhite the time to write up a summary of their beliefs. Apparently, they'd never really written their message down before. They'd just been telling people about it. Applewhite and Nettles edited the document together, titled it The First Statement, and mailed it out to anyone they thought might be receptive, New Age groups, alternative religions, and gurus. It was definitely a Cliff's Notes version of their message. There was nothing about revelation, the apocalypse, or that God is an alien. They only mentioned UFOs twice. Instead, the first statement mostly focused on their promise of transformation, metaphors about caterpillars becoming butterflies. They wrote, those who can believe this process and do it will be lifted up individually and saved from death, literally. If you seek those two while they are here, they will gladly fill you in on the details and insist those who wish to follow in this path. If this speaks to you, respond according to your capabilities or needs. For your sake, give this opportunity your best. And for the first time, they got people's attention. Before we go any further, there's something we need to address. Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Lou Nettles went by several names over the years. They called themselves The Two, Guinea and Pig, Bo and Peep, and Tea and Doe. But for the sake of clarity, we're going to keep using their given names. The same goes for Heaven's Gate. At different points, the group was called Human Individual Metamorphosis, or HIM, Total Overcomers Anonymous, and The Class. But because they're most commonly referred to as Heaven's Gate, we are going to do the same. Once they created the first statement, Applewhite and Nettles' recruitment efforts finally took off. 
In April of 1975, they were contacted by a guru in Los Angeles named Clarence Klug. He was intrigued by their message and invited them to come and speak to his group of followers. Klug had developed his own process for transformation, called self-initiation. He taught his followers that through a combination of alchemy, Hindu mysticism, and tantric sex, they would be able to overcome their human limitations and transform into beings of light. So, you can see why he might be interested in Heaven's Gate. And Klug's own group was crumbling. He'd lost most of his followers. He was out of money, and for those who remained, tensions were high. They'd started to doubt Klug's power to transform them. Then, on April 9th, in walked Applewhite and Nettles, offering their version of metamorphosis. Klug's followers, anywhere from 40 to 80 people, were primed to hear it. Applewhite told them all about their spiritual awakening, the next level, and how to get there. Heaven waited in the cosmos for anyone willing to do the work. But if they wanted to transform, they had to leave their old lives behind. Their homes, jobs, and families. Their possessions, their vices. There was no sex, drugs, or alcohol allowed. Applewhite warned, you would have to literally overcome every human indulgence and human need. You have to lose everything. You will sever every attachment with that world that you have. If they were ready to do that, ready to walk out of their lives, they should meet him on May 5th in Gold Beach, Oregon, the site of their awakening. In the meantime, Applewhite and Nettles would keep recruiting. Several accounts from that night claim that the audience was struck by Applewhite's charisma. He was captivating, confident. At one point, someone asked for more proof. How could they know that Applewhite and Nettles were really members of the next level, sent from outer space? Applewhite coolly replied, You already know who we are, or you wouldn't be here asking the question. After the meeting, about two dozen people agreed to join Heaven's Gate, including Clarence Klug. But it was just the beginning. Within a few months, Applewhite and Nettles had gathered around 100 followers and made national headlines. Coming up, the media puts a spotlight on the UFO cult. Now back to the story. In September of 1975, posters started appearing in bookstores and coffee shops along the Oregon coast. Block letters at the top declared, UFOs, why they are here, who they have come for, when they will leave not a discussion of UFO sightings or phenomena. It was an announcement for a meeting. Along with a brief description of what would be discussed, it promised, if you have ever entertained the idea that there might be a real, physical level in space beyond the Earth's confines, you will want to attend this meeting. The members of Heaven's Gate had distributed this and other recruitment flyers like it for the last few months in California, Oregon, and Colorado. But this meeting, held on September 14th in Waldport, Oregon, would be the most important one yet. Anywhere from 100 to 250 people showed up to hear Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Lou Nettles speak. But when they first walked out on stage, it was an unexpected scene. 44-year-old Applewhite and 48-year-old Nettles looked totally unassuming, dressed alike and with the same short haircut. One former follower said they looked just like your folks, only nicer. And at first, they didn't say anything. Minutes passed in silence. Finally, 
Applewhite laid it all out. He and Nettles were representatives from outer space, sent by God, destined to be martyred. He said that the demonstration and the apocalypse was imminent. The spaceship was coming. Anyone who wanted to join them in the next level would have to commit to the change, and fast. Some of the people in the audience that day spoke about the meeting. They said they were captivated by Applewhite's presence. One former member felt euphoric, higher than a kite in this meeting. Another explained, I felt like I sat in front of the equivalent of Jesus. According to the same follower, 34 people joined Heaven's Gate after the Waldport meeting. But this was a small town, around 1,000 people. Someone almost three dozen of them up and walked out of their lives. Neighbors took notice. The police launched an investigation. Newspapers ran with the story, fascinated by the strange turn of events. One headline read, 20 persons reported missing, lured by a UFO Pied Piper. The New York Times picked up the story. Even Walter Cronkite did a segment on it. It put Heaven's Gate squarely in the public eye, and almost immediately, people were skeptical. Followers had sold their homes, quit well-paying jobs, and left their children behind. For what? Aliens? It didn't make any sense. Then they heard about Applewhite's charm and charisma. Clearly, he must have hypnotized or brainwashed these people. That was the only way the public could wrap their heads around it, mind control. They started comparing Heaven's Gate to the Manson family. But that comparison kind of falls apart once you realize what life was actually like for the original members. In 1975, Heaven's Gate was less of a cult, more loose collection of like-minded people. For the most part, Applewhite and Nettles left their followers to their own devices. They gave them a clear goal, overcome their humanness, but only loose guidelines on how exactly to do that. Because as members said, the process is an individual thing. One follower described life in the group as a rather dull routine. They had to avoid anything that could be a distraction. No reading, no music, no chit-chat. Especially no sex. You weren't even supposed to make friends. That was too human. So most of the time they sat around in silence, thinking, looking up at the stars, working on themselves. Every follower needed to develop a psychic connection with the next level. This might have been inspired by Nettle's theosophy background. It was common for practitioners to channel ascended masters for guidance. But Applewhite and Nettle's called their version tuning in. It was like meditation, sort of. One former member said that they were given tuning forks. A standard tuning fork resonates at 440 hertz, the note A. Followers were supposed to tune their minds to that next level frequency. The member explained in Heaven's Gate, the Cult of Cults, so you take it and hit it and stick it on your head and then kind of like hum it to yourself. They didn't give us instructions on how to do any of that. The group lived as nomads, much like Applewhite and Nettles had done years earlier. They mostly stayed in secluded campgrounds, relocating every couple of days. Occasionally, they went into towns to ask for donations, food and gas money, or to hold public recruitment meetings. But there were rules for these social interactions, canned answers. Outside of recruitment, they weren't supposed to mention Applewhite, Nettles, or that they were members of Heaven's Gate. The group was pretty secretive, maybe a little paranoid. Not only did they move constantly, but they took countermeasures to make it harder to track and follow them. 
One recruit attended a meeting outside Sedona, Arizona, but he wasn't ready to leave just yet. He needed more time to get his affairs in order. He asked the group where he could meet up with them, but they weren't sure where they would be in a few weeks. Instead, they told him, go to the town of Arinda, which is outside of Oakland. Find the post office, and we will leave you an address on page 100 of the zip code book. When the recruit got to Arenda and looked in the book, it simply said, meet us at the top of Mount Diablo. That was nearly 30 miles away. The recruit managed to hitch a ride, but by the time he got to the top of the mountain, it was deserted. He looked around and found a few Heaven's Gates flyers in the trash. So they had been there, but he must have missed them. And then two cars pulled up. They were members of Heaven's Gate. Whether it was just by chance or that was their plan all along, it didn't matter. The recruit got in the car and they all drove away. His story is definitely extreme, but it's not that unique. Once they agreed to join, new members were given the location of a buffer camp, a place for them to integrate and learn the ropes. But they had to find their own way there to prove their commitment. It was usually about a day's drive away, but sometimes it was hundreds of miles. At the buffer camp, every member was assigned a check partner to travel with and to hold each other accountable, someone to make sure they stayed away from human distractions and impulses. They were supposed to be together 24 hours a day, but never intimate, just like Applewhite and Nettles. The partnerships were kind of a test, designed to make members more uncomfortable and cause friction. It forced them to confront their human emotions. For example, they might be assigned to someone they were sexually attracted to. So all day, every day, they had to constantly overcome their desires. After the buffer camp, partnerships were sent out to travel together. It was supposed to be a spiritual test, mimicking the trip that Nettles and Applewhite took together before their epiphany. They'd meet back up as a group every couple of weeks or so at a designated time and place. But even when the members of Heaven's Gate reconvened, their leaders weren't always there. They spent a lot of time off by themselves. In a way, that only added to their mystique. Then, in the fall of 1975, Applewhite and Nettles disappeared completely in hiding. There were probably a couple of reasons for this. First, they were a little bit paranoid. Heaven's Gate was still getting a ton of media attention, and none of it was that flattering. Reporters had uncovered their real names, their photos were published in the newspaper, and everyone was calling Applewhite the next Charles Manson. Applewhite had already spent six months in jail, and he didn't plan on finding himself back there for any reason. But they might have also been hiding from their followers. During their first recruitment meetings, they'd promised that the demonstration and their departure to the next level was imminent, a matter of weeks. But weeks became months, and they hadn't been martyred yet. So going into hiding helped them avoid that problem. It kept their followers focused on themselves and their transformations, rather than the failed prediction. Applewhite and Nettles promised to return to the group before the demonstration, but they didn't give any kind of date or timeline for that. They stayed in contact through occasional phone calls or group meetups. But from late 1975 to early 1976, most of the followers of Heaven's Gate had no idea where their leaders were, or if they'd ever see them again. It's likely that some recruits joined and defected without ever meeting them. In the meantime, the group split up into families, each made up of six or seven partnerships. 
They continued to travel, camp, and hold public recruitment meetings, but all at their own self-direction. Sociologist Robert Balch and David Taylor explained, each family was completely autonomous, traveling almost constantly, going wherever it felt it was being led. The diaspora only added to their sense of confusion. For one thing, we have no idea how many members were in Heaven's Gate at its peak. It could have been anywhere from 150 to 1,500. They just didn't keep track. Some members got frustrated and left, or sometimes they'd just get separated from their family, miss their designated meetup, and were never able to find their way back to them. One partnership was so desperate to rejoin their family, they gave an interview to a reporter. They hoped someone from the group would see the article in the newspaper and come find them. With this kind of foundation, it's honestly surprising that Heaven's Gate survived at all. For almost a year, there was basically no leadership, no structure, no direction. All things you'd think would be essential to a cult. But the reason the group persisted was faith. Life on the road was hard, but when things worked out, it felt like an affirmation that they were on the right path. One follower said, The things that we need to literally live on this human planet until we get off are provided by situations that come up. Help will come in the strangest ways. The members who stuck it out had complete faith in Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Lou Nettles. They knew they would come back to them and lead them to salvation. But when the leaders reappeared in the spring of 1976, it wasn't exactly a triumphant return. All of the negative press had convinced the public that Heaven's Gate was a joke. Their recruitment numbers had fallen off a cliff. And when people did show up to their public meetings, it was mostly to heckle. At the end of one event in April of 1976, Nettles stood up and announced, The harvest is closed. There will be no more meetings. After that, Applewhite and Nettles gathered their remaining followers together, between 80 and 100 people. They announced that the demonstration had already happened. All of the articles mocking them, doubting them, accusing them of brainwashing. It amounted to a character assassination. They'd been massacred by the press and the public. Apparently, their prophesied martyrdom was metaphorical. This meant it was time to move into the next phase of their mission. The spaceship was coming. And the only people on Earth who had a chance of graduating to the next level were the ones standing beside them. Thanks for tuning in to part one of our Heaven's Gate anniversary special, presented by Cults. We'll be back next week with part two of the story. We'll take a closer look at what kind of people joined Heaven's Gate and what life was like inside the group. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Cults was written by Abigail Cannon, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Brian Petrus. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.